following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Wow, thank you so much. So great to be here and uh, such a blessing to fellowship with a sister church. A church that's so like-minded and personality and spirit and obviously theology. So glad to be here and glad to hear all that God is doing in your church. So I just want to bring you warm aloha greetings. It is freezing here. <laughs> I thought this was Southern California. It is freezing. We're dying. My wife actually has told me several, more, several times this morning, I'm dying. It's so cold. So we're not used to this. I uh, do want to thank you for letting us be here. I did, I did want to mention this. We are grateful for being in a place that you don't have to go everywhere and wear masks. You know, in Hawaii, we're still real into this. The mask, I think you, last I heard you have to have a vaccine to exhale. And so we're, we're still <laughs> under the oppression of that. But I, will, I do want to say this. I told this to the early crowd. I, you can, guys can pat yourselves on the back. You know, Hawaii prides itself as being the most progressive state. And by progressive, I mean socialist state. And, um, you know, we had all these rules, but then we were noticing California. I mean, you guys were beating us to that communist utopia, persecuting Christians and churches. I mean, we were just like, so congratulate yourself. You guys are almost there. You did it. You beat Hawaii, so way to go. Well, it is a privilege. If you will open your Bible to uh, the book of Psalms, chapter 19, Psalms 19. The Psalm 19 is a wonderful and vital chapter regarding the sufficiency of Scripture, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture can be defined as the doctrine that the Bible is all we need to equip and empower us for a life of faith and obedience to God. I suppose I should repeat that. The sufficiency of Scripture is defined as the doctrine that the Bible is all we need to equip us and empower us for a life of faith and obedience to God. When it comes to theology, spirituality, all eternal matters. The Bible is the only inerrant, inspired source of truth. So it is the final authority. All other authorities are subservient to Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture also maintains that the Bible is powerful. It is God's Word. It is God's life-giving Word. It empowers us. It enables us to obey. This is why we sing, and we're going to sing it at the end here, or at least we did in the first service, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, what's the next phrase, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. The next phrase says this, what more can He say than to you He hath said? That's an 18th century way of saying the Bible is sufficient. There's nothing else He can say to sufficiently equip you for life and ministry. Now, we read about the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture in many different places in the Bible, like I said, Psalm 19 is sort of the, uh, one of my favorites. It's Psalm 119, by the way, if you knew this. Psalm 119 in miniature form is Psalm 19. Easy to remember that. You'll hear some of the same verbiage that you're familiar with in Psalm 19. Let me, uh, Psalm 119, that is. Let me read to you out of Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. This is the climax of the chapter and the climax of the song that David wrote there. Verse 7 of Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, 
sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This is the word of God. If you were to get into a boat and sail 4,000 miles south, directly south from here, you would end up in a group of islands, four islands, called the Pitcairn Islands. Capital city of Pitcairn is Adamstown, population 47. In fact, the entire population of the Pitcairn Islands lived there in Adamstown. The people, if you didn't know this, the people of Pitcairn are descendants of the infamous, the traitors and the infamous mutiny on the bounty. Did you know this? The mutiny on the bounty, I'll tell you the story. The mutiny on the bounty, it happened in 1789. The bounty was a British ship in uh, the West Indies, the Caribbean, and uh, they were sent to Tahiti to get fruit supplies and bring them back. Well, they got to Tahiti and they fell in love. Some of them literally fell in love with the Tahitian women, and uh, most of them fell in love with just the way of life. In, In the South Pacific, it was laid back, they enjoyed it, they wanted to stay there, and uh, whenever uh, William Bly, the captain of the bounty, said it's time to go back, many of them resisted, and uh, Captain Bly did what any self-respecting 18th century captain would. He publicly flogged them, and this probably planted the seed of mutiny in the minds and hearts of his uh, crew. The first mate, a guy named Fletcher Christian, led the crew in mutiny, and they were successful. They put Captain Bly and a few of those people that were loyal to him on a little boat. They took him out in that boat to where they knew a current would take them uh, further west, and they let them go. An aside here, an interesting story is to follow them. Those guys, Captain Bly and that little small boat and that little crew, survived 3,700 miles. They navigated across and ended up in Indonesia in Timor. Anyway, the mutinists took control of the bounty. They collected all their stuff. They collected their women. They collected a number of children that were there. They, they put them all on the bounty, and they sailed about 1,000 miles east to Pitcairn, those Pitcairn Islands. By that time in history, the particular island that they landed on was nothing but five square miles of mountainous beauty with white beaches, and they thought this would be a great place to Uh, live and survive here. So they decided to settle there. And uh, what wise thing do you think that they did in terms of survival when they first got to the island? The first thing they did, you're right, they set up a distillery. (laughs) This turned into uh, drunken chaos. It was debauchery. It was anarchy, unsurprisingly. Another stroke of genius they had was to burn down the ship. They took some stuff they wanted off and they burned down the ship so no one could ever leave. When it was all said and done, every single man, grown male, was dead except for two guys. They had all murdered each other, and there was a bunch of women and children, and there were two guys. One of them was named, named, he was an officer named Ned Young. Ned Young uh, was going through the detritus that they had gathered from the ship, and he found the bounty's Bible. And he decided they needed to do something different. He started reading that Bible. He trained the other guy. The other guy couldn't even read. He trained him how to, he trained him how to read and write and trained them in the truth of Scripture. And as they studied Scripture, they both embraced Christ. They both became Christians. They both followed Christ, and they both determined that they would set up that society, much unlike their mutinous friends, they to set up that society under the, the morals and rules and structure of uh, what they found in the Bible. They began to do that. Ned actually died uh, with an affection of a guy named John Adams, not the John Adams, that John Adams uh, set up a society. He set up a church. He set up a school. He began to teach and, and show them the things of Christ. Uh, they began to live there. He married a, a Tahitian lady that had come with them. 
they set up this little society. About 10 years passed, and an American ship came by named the Topaz, and the captain saw the people on there, and he, on the little island, and he sailed over there, and he came off, and it surprised him to find this little community there, civilized people, living in peace, free of crime, free of diseases. And the thing that surprised him the most is they were all devout followers of Jesus Christ. Well, how did this happen? Well, it's all down to the power of the Word of God. That Bible, by the way, that Bounty's Bible still exists. They have a little museum there uh, at Pitcairn. You can go see it if you're willing to travel that far. You can go see that little Bible. Sadly, I will say this, like a lot of islands in the South Pacific, you may not know this, but a lot of islands that were once evangelized many, many years ago, 17 and 1800s, many of those islands have turned to cults. Uh, Mormons and others have, have gone to these islands and have been very aggressive at their evangelism. Tonga, the nation of Tonga, is basically all Mormon. Uh, same thing has happened to Pitcairn, unfortunately, even though they once embraced Christ. Uh, there's all kinds of beliefs there. Put that in the hopper, hopper. If you're a young person and you're thinking about missions, the South Pacific wouldn't be a bad place to be a missionary, uh, and they need Christ, definitely. Well, all this is down to the sufficiency of Scripture. How did this happen? The story of, of Adam's and the Bounty's Bible is the story of the sufficiency of Scripture. In terms of our life, in terms of our spiritual life, in terms of our growth, in terms of relationships and morals and inner being, our character, uh, how we relate to the world around us, our worship in the church with one another, it's found in detail in the Word of God. What follows in terms of our ministry as a church as churches, one of the reasons that, that Pastor Chris and I get along so well is because we have the same ministry philosophy, a ministry philosophy that is built on the sufficiency of Scripture. We fashion our preaching, our music, our missions, our leadership, our gatherings, our fellowship, our evangelism, everything is fashioned by the Word of God because we believe the Word of God is sufficient to teach us these things. Our philosophy as a church is not pragmatism, which is what the church growth movement holds, that our objective as a church is to just get, get as many people in a building as possible and to do whatever they want us to do, the lost world wants us to do, in order to sort of trick them in here and psych them into believing in Jesus. Our philosophy is also not revivalism, uh, that mentality that you're providing people with this emotional climax every week, that you just get people all hyped up, you sort of whip up the spirit as they say. Our philosophy is also not denominationalism, which says we're going to plant a church, we're going to have this church there, and all the Baptists or all the Presbyterians or all the whatever can come and be a part of our church. Now, our job is the job of the sower in Mark chapter 4, to sow the seed of the Word. We sow that in our ministries. We sow that in the preaching. We fashion our church by the Word. We cannot change hearts, but God can through His Spirit by the power of the Word. He's declared as such in John 17. Well, this is the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. In Psalm 19, David is mulling about these truths. He's, this is sort of the, the climax of the psalm. Psalm 19, 7 to 11, he's, he's thinking about these things. He's celebrating these things, and he just pours out with praise to God for the sufficiency of Scripture. Poetically, David uses six descriptions, six words each one of those words that are synonyms for the word, each one of those words are given a description, and then they're given a result. So this is what we're going to do today. We're just going to walk through those six descriptions. All right, write this down if you're taking notes. Number one, Scripture is sufficient for spiritual life. Scripture is sufficient for spiritual life. That's verse 7. The law 
of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The word law there, Torah, this is God's instruction. This is God's expectation, the demands that God lays out for us in the Bible, specifying to us what God wants of us. Scripture is God's teaching. It's His outline of how we are to live life. What are the morals? What's the character? How is it applied? What's the law in terms of its relation to salvation? Do we come to God by keeping the laws, or does the law drive us to desperateness where we rely on someone else's righteousness? Well, it's the latter, isn't it? We, we rely, ultimately, the law takes us to a point where the, we're at the end of ourselves. We rely on Christ's righteousness, ultimately. The Bible is our owner's manual. It tells us how to operate, how to function in life. And because God does not change, His morals never shift. What He demands never shifts. His moral will for us never changes. So, what we find morally in the Old Testament is no different than what we find in the New Testament. And for Christians today, yeah, there's one thing, reason I think sometimes you read the Old Testament, you're reading through it, and you realize these Old Testament folks, they're so relatable. They're just like us. They're battling the same sins. They're battling the same relational issues. They're struggling with the same stuff, and they're, they're looking to the same Savior. These people are, are the same as us. We're, we're trying to live by the Word of God. What does David say? The law of the Lord is what? Perfect. This word perfect, it means more than just error-free. It does mean that, but it also means complete, comprehensive. All that you need morally, spiritually, religiously, all that you need in terms of your character. All that those people needed on Pitcairn Island was a Bible. They just opened it up, read it, believed it, and they were saved. And they were sanctified by the Word of God. In the law, we find, as I said, we are incapable to finally give up and trust in the righteousness of Christ. You know, that's part of the gospel, too. Sometimes we forget this. We, we focus on the cross, and obviously, this is sort of the pinnacle of the gospel, the fact that Jesus died for our sins. He made that payment that we could never pay. But guess what? He also provided righteousness. He lived a perfect life, a human life on earth. This is why Jesus, God needed to be incarnated in Jesus. He needed to be in flesh. He lived a perfect life, and that righteousness that Jesus produced in life is applied to us. We need that righteousness, and we see that Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. He perfectly fulfilled the law. And we're declared righteous when we look to Him, and we sing with David, my rock and my redeemer. Your heart is awakened. James says, James 1.18, He brought us forth by what? The word of truth. The word of truth came to us, and the Holy Spirit regenerated our hearts. And we are awakened by the power of God's Word. We are revived or made alive by the power of God's Word. And guess what? This continues in the spiritual life. As you walk and as you are sanctified and as you grow, you grow and you are revived and you go from, from maybe low times in your spiritual walk to high times. You're brought to that life. You're brought to revival by the Word of God. Beginning of salvation, revival doesn't happen when we make revival the objective. It happens when we make the Word of God the objective. You focus on the truth of God's Word. Are you worn out, spiritually speaking? Do you have all these resolutions at the beginning of the year that you've already failed in? And you, you were going to read your Bible every day, and it's only been you know first five days of January. Here you are in March. You haven't read it again. You need spiritual life. You need to grow. That happens when we focus on the Word of God. The Word of God, the perfect law of God, brings to us life. We don't focus on revival. We don't focus on hype. We focus on the truth of God's Word. 
That's one. Number two, Scripture is sufficient for spiritual wisdom. Scripture is sufficient for spiritual wisdom. The rest of verse 7 gives us that second of these six characteristics. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Testimony. This is divine witness, divine attestation. This is what we have in the Bible. Hebrews 6.18 says it's impossible for God to lie. But he offers us in this book, this is divine witness to his truth, what happened, who he is, what he demands. This is sufficient, comprehensive truth, and it comes from God. By definition, it is comprehensive and true. It is sure. Our memory, our words, even our testimonies are failure. Even when we think we saw something, we find out later what we saw wasn't exactly what happened. Every testimony of man is tainted. Every testimony of man, a witness of man, it's a failure. We inject our own ideas. Our memories are weak. We don't remember entirely what happened. Let God be found true and every man a liar. We are failures when it comes to our testimonies, and yet God is always sure. That's why David sings, the testimony of the Lord is sure. Second Peter 1 says in verse 18, in the Bible, we have something more sure, technically more fully confirmed, than even eyewitness account. Peter says, I was there. I saw the glory of God. John and I, we saw in the transfiguration, we saw the glory of God and Jesus. But you have something in the Bible that is more sure than even eyewitness account. It is a divine witness. It is God's testimony of himself. Now, what does that do? When we have this sure testimony of God, his self-attestation, what does it do for us? It fills our simple minds with true wisdom. You want to grow spiritually, don't you? Study the sufficient Word of God. Study the testimony of God. You want to mature, know what truth is, study the testimony of God. You want to know how to deal with life, its challenges, your marriage, study the testimony of God. Make yourself wise, not in the world, but in the Word. Study the testimony of God. God's Word is the only sure testimony, and it's the only thing that will make you truly wise. All right, moving on. We begin in verse 8, which says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Number three, Scripture is sufficient for genuine joy. Scripture is sufficient for genuine joy. Precepts here means doctrines, doctrines that are applied to life. You could call them principles, life principles. Truths about God, about man, about the world, truths concern salvation and eternity, and these are applied to life. Truths about sin and judgment and the future, these things apply to your life. That's what precepts are, doctrines applied, biblical principles. These are precepts. These precepts, David sings, these are right. They are truth in a real sense. They are proven. They are established. They're seen throughout the Bible. They're seen throughout history. He said, if you start to grasp these principles, what happens? Joy. You find joy. You study the Word of God and you find joy. Again, as with revival, some Christians think that because joy is the reward and joy is what God gives us, then joy must be our objective. And they sit around and they just try to psych themselves up all the time and hype themselves up and, 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 and sort of do a lot of positive thinking that's invaded Christianity, right? 
That's not what God wants. God wants us to focus on his word, on his truth, and as we do that, we find true joy. David shows us we pursue this, we know the precepts of the word, and we discover joy. Scripture is sufficient for spiritual life, it's sufficient for spiritual wisdom, and it's sufficient for genuine joy. And why is Scripture sufficient for these things? Because it is indeed, as I said, God's word. It's God speaking. Go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. What is God's word doing? It's making things alive. The whole world, there's nothing, there's void, and God speaks, and into that void comes creation and life and worship and joy. I think about that illustration. I can't remember which one of the books it is in Chronicles of Narnia where Aslan is, is singing and he comes to this new world and he's singing and as he sings, that world is just coming to life. This is what happens. God's word brings life and joy. It brings us wisdom. It's sufficient to do that. And as you read the word and study the word and listen to the word preached, as you do this, it brings these things to our hearts. It brings to us joy and wisdom and life. Why in the world would any church do anything but give people, minister the Word of God to people? Nowadays, it seems like most churches are a little rock concert followed by group therapy. <laughs> Why not just give them something that will actually give them life? The Word. Give them something that gives them real joy. Not self-esteem, not therapy. Give them truth. That will bring to them true joy and true wisdom. Number four, Scripture is sufficient for true discernment. End of verse 8, track this with me. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Commandment, these are the commands, the specifics inside the law. The law is sort of the, the whole thing of it. The law presents the whole system. The commands are the specifics. These are the binding demands God, of God has upon His creation. It's what He expects of mankind, what He commands of us. We see this in the early of commandments, by the way. With obedience, there is blessing. But with disobedience, there is cursing and hardship and sadness. And that does not mean all difficulty is because of sin. Jesus talked about this in his own ministry. But it does mean with all sin, there eventually is sadness and cursing and hardship. You violate God's commands, you create hardship for yourself and others. You'll create sadness and difficulty for yourself and others. may not be immediate, may not be visible in the immediate sense, but you sin and you'll create those things. I want you to get this into your heart. What God commands, since it is for His glory, and since we are created for His glory, what God commands are ultimately benefits and blessings for us. When you read thou shalt, it's, it's God saying, here's how you are blessed in my economy. Here's how you bring glory to me and find blessing and joy. When he says, thou shalt not, here is a way that you need to avoid because that will not bring me honor and you will not find blessing. And we look to the commands of God, not as some uh, burden that we uh, loathe to, to take on to our lives. No, his burden is light. We take this on because it is a joy to obey our God. And how does David describe the commands of God? He says they are pure, the word Pure there is the Hebrew word bar, just B-A-R if you're writing it down. It doesn't mean pure in terms of moral purity, though in fact uh, Scripture is or the commands are morally pure. But it really that word means something more like clarity. They are clear. They are understandable. Along with the doctrine of 
the sufficiency of Scripture is what theologians call the perspicuity of Scripture. That means it's clear and understandable. Whenever we find in the Bible areas that we struggle with, and there are areas like that. Even Peter talked about Paul's writings like that. Sometimes we find places that are hard for us to understand. That's not because God is not clear. That's because we're stupid, <laughs> right? It's not because God is not... We, have, we come to the Bible with baggage and false understanding, and we don't know what happened 2,000 years ago. We need to study these things and learn these things. The Bible is clear. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is called the Shema, the first few verses called the Shema. All Jews memorize this even today. One of the phrases says this, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. So even children can understand the Word of God. These commands are not convoluted philosophical nuances that only wise people at seminaries can understand. These are things that anybody, they're plain, anybody can understand these things. Martin Luther famously said that all he did was get the word to people. If you remember the story of Martin Luther's life after uh, uh, the great synod, the Diet of Worms that he went to and was, was judged and basically was told that he was going to be executed and he escaped and was kidnapped by his friends. He ended up in a castle. What did he do in that castle? When he was by himself, what did he do? He translated the Bible. He actually founded the German language as we know it today as he did that. Translated the Bible into German so that people could read it. He said this, quote, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The Word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The Word did everything. Why is that? As the people opened the Word of God, it was clear to them. This papacy is a farce. This salvation that they pedal is a farce. Indulgences are a farce. The priests are a farce. Here is truth. And they understand the clear Word of God, and the Word of God indicted the Roman Catholic Church. Luther said, I had nothing to do but simply to deliver the Word of God to people. It was so clear. The clarity of the Word, what does it do? It enlightens the spiritual eyes. Into verse 8. It brings light. You could say it this way. It gives us spiritual discernment. It gives us spiritual discernment. Now, let me say something. I, I know that we use the word discernment in different ways, and sometimes we use it to talk about, you know, an inner hunch, and you sort of discern something. That's not spiritual discernment. Biblical or spiritual discernment is not an inner hunch. I know that, again, we sometimes have a sixth sense, but usually that comes from knowledge that we filled our minds with. Spiritual discernment is not just having a bunch of Bible facts. Some people are really good at little Bible factoids. That doesn't mean you are spiritually discerning. Discernment is a spiritual discipline. It's a virtue that we all, as every Christian, should pursue. You see it right there in the text. Someone who becomes intimate with the Word, that person is the one who's given light. Your Word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Years ago, when uh, I was working at a bank, I know you guys look at me thought I was a bodybuilder. Uh, I worked at a bank when I was younger. And uh, the way they taught you how to spot counterfeit was not to give you a bunch of facts about false cash and true cash, but it was to make us count tons and tons of cash, of real, genuine bills. And you get so familiar with the feel and even the, the smell 
and the look of these bills that as soon as they throw in a fake one in there, you can spot it immediately. And what a great analogy to the way we handle the Word of God. The more you handle the Word of God, the more discernment comes into your life. The more you realize what's false and what's true, the more discernment you're given. Discernment is gained, it's learned by anyone who is willing to put in the time and the effort to study the Bible. Discernment is achievable by any humble believer. And I say humble because as soon as you start to think, well, I have discernment, you're not discerning your own pride. You're lacking a discernment. The Bible, as we study it, gives us discernment. If you're humble, if you're always aware, you can be deceived. If you're in pursuit of truth, of the Word, you have your armor on, you're pursuing more and more familiarity with the Word of God, God opens your eyes to what is true and what is false. That's what it does for us. Number five, Scripture is sufficient for inner peace. Verse nine, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Interesting here that David uses the word fear. We know he's using it as a synonym for the word because every one of these nouns are synonyms for the Scripture. We know he's talking about Scripture, commandment, precepts, testimony, law, later on rules. So this noun fear must also be a synonym for the Word of God. Well, this word fear would not sound so weird as it does to us as it would to people that lived back then. The Hebrews back then would have understood that the fear of the Lord is essentially the worship of God, and the worship of God is given to us, is shown to us in the Bible. The book, the Bible, is essentially a worship manual, not simply in the sense of corporate worship. Yes, it is that. It gives us instruction of how we are to gather and what we are to do when we gather. It does give us that instruction, but it also gives us how to worship God in life. We love Him with all our mind, soul, and strength. How we're to live in indifferent, reverent worship of God throughout our life. The fear of God, sure, it involves actual fear, a reverent fear for the judge of the universe, but it also involves a reverent intimacy and joy. It's all about knowing God. It's all about gaining the wisdom of God. The, Pro- the book of Proverbs is a book about the wisdom of God. It's about gaining that intimacy and that joy and that understanding of God. And it goes through and it explains this is how you live according to God's principles, according to God's wisdom. Verse 7 of chapter 1 of Proverbs says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. It all begins with this attitude of worship. It all begins with this reverent fear of God, the desire to know Him, to worship Him with your life, and you do that by first opening your Bible and studying it. The spirit of worship is found in God's Word. If you avail yourself, if you fill yourself with the Word, you're filling your heart with worship, with respect. And what happens? David goes on, the fear of the Lord is clean. That word I referenced earlier, it's not the word bar, but this one is about moral excellence. It's about, it's about perfection. It's about infallibility or inerrancy, to use the words of the theologians. It is mistake-free. It's a mistake-free representation of God's thoughts, God's words. In its original form, it is presenting to us in an error-free way the worship of God. There's not one statement, not one accounting, not one doctrine, not one principle or historical record that is corrupted. 
It is clean, it is clear of any stain or taint. It is a perfect, like I said, a perfect representation of God. And because it's the perfect presentation of God, it calls us to worship Him, to fear Him, and it should be trusted with absolute certainty. Second Peter, I referenced this earlier, we're told how this miracle happened. It had to be a miracle because man cannot produce something that's infallible or inerrant. So a miracle had to happen. Peter describes that miracle in 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, as these men wrote the Word of God, God's Holy Spirit came in and worked a miracle. It's interesting, people are very open, especially in Hawaii and Southern California, they're very open to miracles and the supernatural, just not the one that makes the Word of God perfect. This miracle happened. Every time these men sat down, when God decided to to put His words and give His words to creation, God brought the Spirit, and the Spirit breathed that word through those men. Yes, it was in their language, in their situation, to their people. Yes, it was with the, the vocabulary of that particular author. But this miracle took place. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So David concludes, because Scripture is the perfect representation of God's worship, of the fear of God, we can have now have confidence of its eternal, enduring value. What does this do? Well, this gives us peace. Isn't it nice to know that there's one place you can go, and it's always true, and it's always right, and it's always going to guide you in the right direction, and it's always going to curb your worship of false gods and give you the worship of God, there is one place you can go. And it's not Pastor Chris. It's not any pastor. It's the Word of God. Now, insofar as they're ministering the Word of God to you, obviously. You go to the Word of God and you have this Word that endures forever, and in that we find confidence and comfort and inner peace. We live in the Word of God and we will find peace. So the Word of God... Sufficient for inner peace, sufficient for true discernment, sufficient for genuine joy, for spiritual wisdom, spiritual life. Finally, number six, Scripture is sufficient for the pursuit of holiness. End of verse nine, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I read one commentator, he said a good translation of this phrase is that the judgments of the Lord are true and they produce comprehensive righteousness. That's what I'm aiming for, aren't you? Be ye holy as I am holy. I have that desire to be right, to do what's right, to live like Christ, to to work righteousness in my context. Theologians, when they talk about the righteousness of Christ being applied to us, they speak of it in two different ways. One is what's called forensic righteousness. This is the righteousness we need to cover us in the judgment. We don't go to heaven, if you're not a Christian or you're new to Christianity, we don't get, a, get to heaven by giving God the list of good things we did. We get to heaven because we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ, according to the vernacular of, of Paul, using the vernacular of Paul in Romans 3 and 4, the righteousness of Christ is credited to us when we have faith. This is forensic righteousness. You get the idea of judgment, forensic, evidence. So God doesn't look at us and, and see 
and say, you go to heaven because you did, you know, so many good things or so many bad things or you're good outweighs your, your bad or anything like that. He looks at us, and if we've had faith in Christ, we are granted eternal life because of his righteousness, not ours. But there's something else that is given to us, another kind of righteousness of Christ, and it's called the transformative righteousness of Christ. And this actually is given prior to salvation or prior, technically prior to when we repent and have faith. It is part of regeneration, and it's called the transformative righteousness of Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to us, He awakens our heart, and gives us a desire to obey and worship God. And that desire begins to to build and build. And by the way, when God begins a work, He always completes it. That desire begins to build and build until finally you see the gospel, you hear it, you have faith in Christ, you're declared righteous, you are forensically righteous now before God, and then you pursue a life of transformation. You're conforming your life. You have this deep desire to do what is right. This is one of the signs of being a true believer, right? Is a desire, a constant desire, to constantly turn away from your sin and turn to righteousness. You know, I don't know how often it comes up in your church. It comes up in our church once in a while, a couple times a year, this idea of church discipline. We don't discipline people simply because they're sinners. We would never excommunicate someone just because they're sinners because we'd start with the pastor, right? We all sin. The idea is that Endemic to being a Christian is that you desire to be righteous. You desire to be holy. You're ready to repent of sin. You want to flee what's wrong and flee to Christ. And some of you Christians here, you, you've let sin invade your life and, and, and you've let some dark things come over you and, and get into your life. How do you overcome this? You go to the Word. The clean Word of God comes into your life and it begins to produce righteousness. The Word of God gives you instruction of how you submit and how you do counseling and how you come under and get discipleship and and it instructs you on corporate worship, all these things leading you to righteousness. This is the evidence that you're walking with Christ, that you love Christ, that you have that transformative righteousness, this desire to hate sin. And when you go to the Word of God, you open up a resource to drive you to the righteousness God requires of us. Well, what happens as David gets to the end here and sings of all these things, he can't help himself and he just bubbles up with really the ultimate result, verses 10 and 11, more to be desired are they, speaking of the word of God, the words of God, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Folks, this is the ultimate application of the sufficiency of Scripture, isn't it? If you refuse or you neglect the Word of God, no matter what church you go to, no matter how many things you've done for your church, if you you neglect the Word of God, you do not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. You may say, you may have signed something, you may have some statement of faith that the church signs or whatever, you may be at a church that proclaims, and I know you are if you're a member here at a church that proclaims the sufficiency of Scripture, you may be a part of that, but if you do not avail yourself of the Scripture every single day, you do not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. You think you can do life alone, on your own power, without that study. David mentions human desire here. He says, much more to be desired than gold, sweeter than honey. 
All human desire can be put in those two categories, the category of power and the category of pleasure, power being money or influence or stuff or social fame or rank or respect, authority over others. That's forms of power. That's a temptation for man. That's a desire of man. The other categories is human desire, uh, of human desire is pleasure, base human pleasure, tasting, eating, sexual pleasure, recreation, rest, sleep, the pleasure of escape. Now, this is not to say all things that we do in those categories are wrong. Jesus had authority. Jesus rested. But what David is doing is forcing upon us a list of priorities. We have these desires, desires of, of power and pleasure. We have those desires. But what I want you to put above all those things, much better than both of those things, is the Word of God. So desire instead the Word of God. Desire to know the Word. More to be desired are gold, power, or tasty honey, pleasure. You put a desire to know and learn the Word of God, he said, first of all, you'll learn these things, and second, you'll find great warning, and in that warning there comes reward. This world is a dangerous place. Your old flesh, even if your spirit has been redeemed, your flesh, your body is not yet redeemed, and it wars against you. And so this is a dangerous place to be, but the Word of God changes us. It transforms us. It gives us great reward. What are those great rewards? Well, well, this is what He's told us. It's holiness. It's peace. It's discernment, joy, wisdom, life. Give yourself to the pursuit of God's Word, and that's what you find. Why? Because it is God's Word. And what you find in the end is not just God's Word, some words on a paper. What you find in God's Word is God Himself. I'm not preaching the sufficiency of Scripture so that you guys would walk away as better theologians. I'm preaching this so that you would be better worships, worshipers of God, that you would better worship God, that you would love God and know God better than you did when you walked in. That's the reward. Well, I thank God always for you all. This, is, this church has been a testimony of the sufficiency of Scripture, isn't it? It's a testimony of a church that can stand up and do something different meet in a smelly gymnasium. It smells like teenage sweat in here. That may be John, though, or Patrick or somebody else up here. There's a testimony. I was telling someone earlier, our church, we have about four or 500 people that come on Sunday morning, and uh, we have 46 parking spaces. And somehow, and I, I, I'm always a little bit surprised every Sunday morning, somehow people are all here. They all show up. And they have to, we're on a real steep hill. They have to climb up and down this hill just to get into the church building. There's a testimony of God's Word, the power of God's Word. It's changed you, and you know that's where the power is. And my prayer is that you'll continue to do that as a church that stands up for the sufficiency of Scripture. Let's pray that we do this. Lord, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for what you've given us in the Word of God. It truly is powerful. And so we come to you, first of all, confessing that we have neglected the Bible. Not one of us can claim innocence on this. We all do not study the Word of God enough and as intently or as earnestly as we should. But we know that you've forgiven us. The Bible tells us that when we come confessing, you have forgiven us in Christ. And you continue to make us holy. So, Lord, we come to you confessing that, and we don't just confess it, we repent of it. We want to turn away and 
We ask that your word, even preached and read today, will empower us. And we pray that you would empower us by the reading today to go back to our homes and get up tomorrow morning and study your word and study your word in our families. And I pray this would become a, a prime objective in our lives. Lord, I also pray for those who don't know you, whether they're here in person or watching. I pray, Lord, you would give them the desire to know you through your word. Lord, you have given this flawless presentation of yourself, of the truth of salvation in your word, and we pray that they would go to it and find the truth of the gospel, that they too can be saved from your wrath by trusting in Christ, by not leaning on their own understanding, by worshiping you in all their ways, by coming to you and acknowledging that their righteousness is as filthy rags and only Christ's righteousness and his payment for death and his powerful resurrection is what gives them life. And so, Lord, give them faith. And, Lord, help them understand that it's only then that they can start to produce true righteousness inspired by the Spirit given to them by the Word. Give them a desire. Give us all the desire to follow you. Give us a desire for your Word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.